Since I retired from Mid-Valley Bible Church in the fall of 2013, at the time I confessed to you I had no idea that I would continue to have so many opportunities to speak and minister to a variety of people. Uh, it has been my privilege since I left the church to be the interim pastor of four other churches, which astounds me. Uh, when I joined the particular organization that I am part of, I told them that I would uh, be the interim pastor at any church west of the Mississippi River. And one of the churches that I was the interim pastor at was three miles west of the Mississippi River, way out in Missouri. But it was a great ministry, and my wife and I made a lot of wonderful friends, and it just continues to amaze me as to the opportunities God gives me to minister in such a, uh, an abundant way and so many varieties of opportunities, and I am grateful for that. Now, last week, Doug preached from the book of Romans, and he gave us basically the uh, idea and responsibilities that we are supposed to have as God's people living in the day in which we live. Uh, the responsibilities as Christian people living in, if you please, a foreign land. And to us, this is kind of a foreign land. We certainly do understand that. But at exactly the same time, when he asked me to speak, uh, oh, probably about a month ago, I said to myself, well, you know, I'm not sure just exactly how I should present or what I should present, but I thought to myself, well, I'm going to go ahead and preach on this particular passage, not realizing that it would probably dovetail perfectly with what he said last week. Only I confess to you that I'm turning the coin completely over uh, on that because last week it was a positive message. <coughs> well, Today might be the opposite of positive, okay? So hang in there, and hopefully we can, uh, we can just be ministered to together in a very, very wonderful way. Uh, September 2nd, 1945, was the end of World War II. I was born 21 days later in Hastings, Nebraska. The battleship Missouri was docked and anchored in Tokyo Bay. The delegation from Japan came to the boat and signed a document of unconditional surrender. And the bloodiest war in the history of the world was then over. Now for the next 15 to 20 years, things were relatively peaceful. Except for the Korean War conflict, except for the Cuban Missile Crisis, except for the Civil Rights Movement, which really, really were not that uh, intense, uh, so to speak. The world was kind of at peace to some degree. But it is interesting that Satan was beginning to work. Let me tell you a little bit about my growing up days in Utah. Uh, I can remember back then in the uh, late 50s and early 60s that uh, people of the common faith here in Utah 
would carry Bibles. Uh, I never carried a Bible to school, but others did. And uh, uh, just to show you how conniving I was back then, and it has developed even further uh, as I have gotten older, uh, I remember one instance where I took a Bible from a young lady because she was sitting right next to me in class, and she happened to be one of the cheerleaders uh, for the school. And I, I, I asked her if I could hold her Bible, and she said, sure. And I said, how, mu- how much do you know about this Bible? Uh, you know, <coughs> you, you know what's coming, don't you? Uh, how much do you know about, oh, I know a lot about this Bible. I said, well, uh, would you quote the books of the Bible for me? You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you know. Well, I can't do that. I said, well, I thought you knew about the Bible. I thought you knew the Bible. Well, uh, that, that's all right. Can you quote this one Bible verse from the Bible? Uh, no, I can't do that either. I said, well, I thought you knew the Bible. Well, anyway, <clears throat> I was a little deceitful, a little conniving, but I just wanted to show her that there was a lot more to learn about the Bible than she thought she knew. But I can remember growing up, back when prayer and Bible reading were part of the public school system, that at one Christmas program, the main choral group of the school memorized the entire Luke chapter 2 Christmas story. And this choral group, in a dramatic recitation, quoted that entire story at the Christmas program. I remember that just as clear as can be. I can remember periodically standing up beside our desk, quoting the Pledge of Allegiance. I can also remember things periodically that there would be prayer in public school. Now, I compared that notes to my wife's notes, and she can remember her experience in a little town outside of Altoona, Pennsylvania, where every morning over the PA system, they would stand beside their desk and they would quote the Pledge of Allegiance. And then they would also, because everybody in the school had it memorized, recite the Lord's Prayer before the beginning of class and before the beginning of the school day. Now, it is probably very, very safe to say that young people now have never even participated in anything like that things started happening. Things started happening. On June 12th, 1963, the Supreme Court decided that prayer and Bible reading in public school was to no longer take place. And so in a decision of eight to one, prayer and Bible reading in public school were banned. Can you imagine nine people in black robes forced that on a country and to our dismay, it has started changing everything. Let me ask you a question. Did you vote for that? No, you weren't even around then probably. It caught you off guard. It was forced upon us. So we lived with it. One person has quipped 
As long as there are math tests in school, there will always be prayer in public school. And you know what? They're right. But something happened 10 years later. January 22nd, 1973. The Supreme Court came out with another ruling. And that ruling has literally transformed the entire attitude of the country in a decision, Roe versus Wade, in which in a seven to two decision, the Supreme Court decided that abortion was now the law of the land. Did you vote for that? No. Nine people in black robes made that decision. Forced it upon the country, unsuspecting. Well, we thought everything was <coughs> getting worse, and sure enough, it was. And lo and behold, June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court came out with another decision, and that decision was same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage. And it's a right. Anybody can do it. Uh, did you vote for that? No. Nine justices voted in a decision of five to four to make that the law of the land. And again, it was forced on an unsuspecting nation. And we said to ourselves, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, <clears throat> I don't want to get too uh, personal here, but I find it very, very interesting that on June 1st of this year, our own governor, Republican, maybe not real conservative, decided to declare June Gay Rights Month. And the local press just thought that was wonderful. Oh, they're finally recognizing the trend that our country is going. June 1st. You remember what he did on June 2nd? He encouraged all of us to pray for rain. Do you see an irony there? I do. Do you know that there is a principle in the Bible that you get rid of sin first and then God blesses you? That's the principle. But since we have abandoned the Scriptures, since we have abandoned the principles of God, just about anything goes. You know that there was a prophet in the Old Testament that was going through exactly the same kind of quandary in his day. And that prophet was a man by the name of Habakkuk. Let me back up for just a minute and kind of give you an idea of where we are headed. The United Monarchy started in the year 1050 B.C. Saul ruled for 40 years. David ruled for 40 years. Solomon rules for 40 years. And then the kingdom split. And lo and behold, you had the kingdoms in the north constituting the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. It is interesting that these two nations basically were at odds with each other. 
One was very, very pro-idolatry. That would be the city, the country in the north. One was attempting to stay the course. And it is interesting, as they attempted to stay the course, they had a good king and then a bad king, and a good king and a bad king. The northern tribes got carried away 150 years almost before the southern tribes. And finally, God said, I've had enough. I've had enough. And there were three kings right toward the end of the reign of Judah that God did raise up in hopes that the nation would turn around, and it never did. Hezekiah, a good king. Manasseh, a really bad king. And Josiah, a good king. But the trend had already started. And this trend was a downward spiral. They were now moving from the sewer line into the septic tank, if you please, as far as their morals were concerned. Idolatry was on the rise. It just so happened that the king Josiah, killed in battle, had three sons and a grandson. And those three sons and a grandson did everything they possibly could to align themselves politically to protect themselves, and it didn't work. They thought if we make the right political arrangement, then we'll be okay. It just didn't happen. So, there's a prophet that God raised up. And that prophet was a man by the name of Habakkuk. Habakkuk had a genuine concern as he saw his nation begin to dissolve and fall apart. And he hoped that there would be a revival. And one of the things that we discover when we come to the book of Habakkuk is that there is a principle that God had, which the nation was simply, simply neglecting. And that is over in the book of Psalms, verse 33, chapter, or verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. They were disregarding that. In addition to that, over in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to people. They were disregarding that. They were deciding to go their own way, and prophet after prophet up to the time of Habakkuk was warning the people, look out, judgment is coming if you don't change. And sure enough, God said, I've had enough. It is interesting that if you look at our own country, one of the things that you will discover is that the last great revival that we had in this country, as near as many are able to figure, took place in the late 60s and early 70s in what was called the Jesus Movement. Uh, many of you probably remember that. Uh, Hal Lindsey wrote a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth, and the amazing thing is people started reading that and millions and millions of copies sold. And the 
country took a slight spin just a little bit and got back on track just a little bit. But we're about due for another revival. And the question is, will it happen? Habakkuk was praying for a revival. And Habakkuk was asking the question, is something positive going to happen? Is God going to turn things around? Is there hope for our country? And I suspect that many of us in the room today are asking much the same thing. Is there hope for our country? If you have your Bible, turn, if you will, to the book of Habakkuk. And just quickly, we're going to look at some of the principles from Habakkuk because the book of Habakkuk is a story. And uh, God is asking Habakkuk, or Habakkuk is asking God, do something. Just do something. And Habakkuk is praying. And essentially speaking, what we have in the book of Habakkuk is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk is really not concerned with giving a message out as much as he is solving a problem. And that problem is what to do about the future. Where are we headed? As you look at the outline of the book of Habakkuk, one of the things that you discover is from verse 2 down to verse 4 of the first chapter, Habakkuk prays. Starting with verse 5 down to verse 11, God answers. Starting with chapter 1, or chapter 1 verse 12, Habakkuk prays again. And then starting down in chapter 2 verse 2, God answers again. So what you have is a situation in which Habakkuk expresses his dilemma. God answers and Habakkuk expresses another dilemma or distress, and God answers. I find that underlying the entire book of Habakkuk is the question of what to do when we pray and God doesn't answer the prayer as we would like. Uh, all of us in the room will have to admit that whenever we pray, in the back of our mind, we have an idea of the way we want it answered. Wouldn't all of you agree with that? We say, Lord, uh, uh, we want you to do something. Do anything. We don't tell Him what to do, but we already have the answer in the back of our head. And then God proceeds to answer the prayer, and we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you can't do it like that. That wasn't what I had hoped for. That's not what I expected. So look with me at the sequence. Notice how he says, starting with chapter 1, verse 2. And the whole question is built around two comments. First of all, in verse 2, how long? Beginning verse 3, why? How long and why? Notice he says in verse 2, How long, O Lord, will I cry for help and you won't hear? I cry out to you violence and yet 
you don't rescue us. Lord, do something. Do something, anything. We're at your mercy. We hope that there is a possibility that you will work on our behalf. You see, what had happened is the nation had already kind of crossed the line in the sand. Some have even suggested that United States has crossed the line in the sand. That there's basically no hope. I don't know. I wish that an election would turn things around. I wish that a change in policy would turn things around. But there's virtually no guarantee that that will ever happen. So there's a sense in which we are living in exactly the same situation that Habakkuk is living in. I am in no way suggesting that United States is Israel. No way. I am no way suggesting that there's any parallel between the United States being quote-unquote religious and Israel. But I am saying that there is a interesting principle, and that is you can go too far and God says it's over. That's where Habakkuk was. Notice what he says in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Notice verse 4. If there's any parallel to what's going on in our country, it's right here. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld and the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Does that sound like today? It certainly does. Habakkuk was facing exactly the kind of situation we're facing today. And he verbalizes that to God. And he says, God, I want you to do something because this is happening. So God begins to answer the prayer. You know, Habakkuk is kind of an interesting and unique individual because it's as if we are reading his personal diary of his thoughts and God's answers. All of us have those personal thoughts within us. And God responds. How does God respond? Verse 5, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder. I am going to do something in your day which if I tell you, you won't even believe it. Now, I really do believe that in the back of Habakkuk's mind, and I recognize I'm going way out on a limb on this, but I really do believe that Habakkuk is hoping that there will be a national revival. I really believe that what he is hoping for is that things will turn around, that a good king will be installed, policies will be put in place, and everything's going to start changing. But God says, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to do something which is so astounding so amazing, so outside the box, 
that you're never even going to imagine that it could happen. And he goes on and he says, I'm raising, verse 6, the Chaldeans. I'm working behind the scenes. You see, what had happened for 150 to 200 years is that the nation of Assyria was in control. But the nation of Assyria was starting to decline in power. And the Babylonians were starting to be powerful. And they were vicious. And so the Assyrians called the king of Egypt and said, we're going to have a rendezvous up at a city called Carchemish. And sure enough, the Egyptian army came up. The Assyrian army came up to try to defeat the Babylonians. And what happened? In 609, the Babylonians creamed both of them. Uh, It was brutal. And notice what the way he describes it. Verse 7, they are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, keener than wolves in the evening. Uh, They swoop down like eagles. Here is a nation that is so vicious and so powerful. They care about nothing. Uh, that's a bit of a concern to Habakkuk because he knows that the next logical and geographical step is for that nation to swoop down to Judah and gobble them up. And sure enough, that's exactly what eventually happened. Starting in 585, the Babylonians came and they started methodically carrying people away into captivity. And the amazing thing is the wicked were destroyed in Judah, but there were a lot of righteous that were destroyed at exactly the same time. Yes, there were some of the cream of the crop that were taken back into Babylon, but both the righteous and the wicked suffered as a result of this particular trend. Well, do you think that Habakkuk just sits aside and says, that's okay. That's fine. We'll accept that. (laughs) Not on your life. Not on your life. Look what he says, starting with verse 12 of chapter 1. Aren't you from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? No, he's appealing to God's sovereignty. He's appealing to God's righteousness. He's appealing to God's holiness and saying, God, you're above all this. You couldn't possibly be doing it this way because it's so different. Because as you look down through here, one of the things that you discover is that Habakkuk is concerned that God is doing something totally opposite of his character. You see, the natural normal tendency is for a righteous person to punish the unrighteous person. That's the natural normal tendency. But in this particular case, an unrighteous nation is going to come and punish a less 
righteous or a, a, a nation that, that should be righteous but isn't. It would be the equivalent, if you please, of a mass murderer punishing a shoplifter. And Habakkuk says, we can't have that. It just doesn't fit into our sequence of doing things. I don't know about you, but I look around the world right now. And I see nations that are getting stronger and stronger and more powerful. And we are beholding to them as a country. And there is a tendency in which they could just pull the rug right out from under us. And we say, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, United States is the country in the entire world that supports more missionaries than any other country on the globe. United States has more churches than any other country in the entire world. And yet, what is it that we see? We see a downward trend, or shall I say, a downward slide. And the slide becomes more rapid, more quick-paced. And we say to ourselves, boy, this, this, this isn't right. This doesn't feel good at all. Where are we headed? That's the problem Habakkuk has. And would you notice that Habakkuk asked the question, why? Three times he says, why? The end of verse 13. Why do you look with favor on them? Middle of verse 13. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow people up? Verse 14. Why have you made men like fish of the sea? These people are going on a rampage and they're just destroying us. We don't like that, do we? We as a country have been first for so long. We have stayed, if you please, on top of the world. We are the envy of the world. And it could well be that God is saying, that's enough. It's over. I'm not a prophet. I hope I... I'm not portraying myself as a prophet, but I am suggesting to you that there is a tendency that we have in this country to where we are floating on the past and we're just hoping for the best. You see, it's still true. Blessed is the nation. The nation whose God is the Lord. It is still true that righteousness exalts a nation. Not just people in the nation. But a nation. Where are we headed? I don't know. I don't know. But I look at Habakkuk. He's got a dilemma on his hands. And God says, I want to put you in touch with a principle. And the principle is this. 
He says down in verse 4, the proud ones, their soul is not right within them. But he goes on and he says, those who are righteous are going to live by a faith principle. Uh, Boy, how important that is. Do we as God's people continue to live by a faith principle or do we hope that our finances are okay and our policies are okay and we look out for our future or do we relying on God? Boy, oh boy, how important it is for us to abandon some of the things that our society holds dear and recognize that there's a God principle that always must be maintained. How easy it is for us to just turn our back on what we know to be true in Scripture and just hope for the best. If my people, God says, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. Again, we're not Israel, but there's a principle. Sin is a disgrace to people. And when there's a failure on our part, to speak out, to unashamedly say, this is where we need to be. Who knows what will happen? Well, after God gets through telling Habakkuk all of this, and we don't have time to look at all of the details with regard to it, but starting with chapter 2, verse 2, he tells us that, look, I want you to make this so plain, so clear, that someone who runs can see it. And we, we're not sure that's exactly how verse 2 is supposed to be uh, understood. But he does say, uh, make it as crystal clear as possible so that people will understand it. And there's going to be people that deny it. But our responsibility is to declare the truthfulness of it. And after God tells Habakkuk that, yeah, Babylon is going to be the one that punishes the nation. And here's another enigma. Here's another interesting principle. I'm going to raise Babylon up to punish the nation of Judah. But then I'm going to punish Babylon for punishing Judah. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? But that's the ways of God. That's his sovereign plan and principle. After Habakkuk hears all this, chapter 3, notice verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Siganoth. And notice it can be summarized in two things. Two things are revive your work and remember mercy. 
God, I want you to just do what you're going to do. But I'm asking you to remember mercy. Uh, We have no idea the devastation of the city of Jerusalem. But it was destroyed. It was wiped off of its foundation. I think Habakkuk was probably, and I can't prove this, but Habakkuk must have been caught up in that. We have no record of what happened to Habakkuk after this. We do have record of certain people that were rescued and taken to Babylon. It could well have been Habakkuk was one of those people that were caught up in this whole system. And they suffered. He suffered. And so how is it that Habakkuk responds? Uh, Look, if you will, starting with chapter 3, verse 16, as we bring this to a close, because here are things that Habakkuk experienced. Verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled. I was just shaking at the sound. My lips quivered. Decay entered my bones and in my place I trembled because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. I'm just going to sit back and wait for it to happen. Uh, Literally, what is happening is he's paralyzed by this. He says, "I, I, I have seen what is going to happen in advance to our nation. I have seen the devastation Babylon is going to bring to us. And I'm paralyzed. I, I, I wonder, is there any way to get around this? And notice what he goes on to say. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stall. What's happening? The land is totally and completely devastated. But look, if you will, at the last two verses. This is where we need to live. This is what we need to be mindful of. Yet, I will exalt in the Lord. Folks, if things start falling apart, He's the only one to trust. If things start going south, I mean really fast, he's the one to trust. I will trust in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. I can live above it all. I can live above it all. Some of us in the room, most of us, have had devastating experiences in our life. And we can look back and see see the way God has sustained us through those experiences. It's, It's an unexplainable thing. And yet, this is what God specializes in. This is what God is good at. He wants us to be able to say, stop trusting in 
anything that you have around you, just look up and trust in Him. When times get difficult, who else can you trust? When despair surrounds you, who else can you trust? No one else. No one else. Thank you, Father, for this day. We are mindful of the fact that this lesson from Habakkuk's day is something that we could very well be experiencing in our country. Father, we confess we don't like it. We wish it were not so. But at exactly the same time, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have a mainstay in You as we grab hold of Your promises, as we, as we allow Your strength to infuse us, to strengthen us for the daily tasks that are ahead. May we be examples of fortitude, of confidence, not in policies, not in people, not even in ourselves, but in God. Thank you so much, our Father, that we have the Lord Jesus Christ living within us that gives us this confidence. Our Father, we ask that as we dismiss and go our separate ways, this might be a refresher and a reminder to constantly stay in touch with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close our service, please?